Grab your Bibles, if you would, and open it to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there's one around you. You can use that one. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. I have two questions for you. Here's the first question. How many victorious, overcoming, joy-filled, loving followers of Jesus Christ do you know who are impacting their world around them? How many joy-filled, loving, victorious followers of Jesus Christ do you know that are impacting the world around them? Second question. When you look in the mirror, are you one of them? You should be. And you can be, starting tonight. Now, whether or not you are one of these victorious Christians or not is dependent upon this. Are you totally obedient to the word that God has spoken to your life? Not partially obedient, because partial obedience is disobedience. Not mostly obedient, because mostly obedient is completely disobedient. Not later obedient, because... Um, deferred obedience is disobedient. Are you entirely surrendered to the will of God? So that's what we're talking about. The book of Luke, chapter 1. And it's an exciting Christmas message. And I have been really encouraged by this. And I told the, I told the prayer meeting earlier as we were praying for tonight's service that this is the third time I will have given this sermon. So it's really tweaked. So you guys get the totally tweaked version. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm an insatiable studier, so if I were going to give this message ten more times, I would not stop studying and tweaking. So um, it's good that we have to move on to a new week. (laughs) But I've enjoyed it every time, and I've been challenged by it. Here we go. Luke chapter 1. And we're talking about obedience. We're talking about the high cost of disobedience, the brokenness that will inevitably flow from disobedience, whether it's delayed obedience, whether it's partial obedience or whether it's mostly obedient, it's completely disobedient. And we're talking about the brokenness that flows from disobedience to God. And then we're talking about the blessing of obedience and then the bridge back to obedience. So let me begin with this statement. When will we, as followers of Jesus Christ, learn how unspeakably obedience is in God's sight? When will we learn how unspeakably pleasing obedience is in God's sight? And when will we understand how great the reward when God blesses our obedience? So that we have a heart where we say, God, we want you to know us and we want the world to know us by one characteristic. We are a will that is completely given up to your will. So let's begin with the brokenness that flows from disobedience. The high cost of disobedience. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, they were righteous, not in the sense of salvation, righteous, and not in the sense of blameless to the law, um, so that they were literally blameless. This is in terms of their character and integrity. They were good people. Verse 7. 
But they were childless. Thus, sadness enters their heart. Sadness enters the story. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. You think that's something they've prayed about over the years? Yes or no? Yeah. You bet they've prayed about this. They were an old couple. And they, for their entire lives, and in this culture, they probably got married when she was 13 or 15 years of age. Now she's old. Their entire lives, they've been trying to have a child. They've been unable to have a child. You think they've prayed about it? They've prayed countless times about it. But they stopped praying about this perhaps decades ago. And now that prayer was simply replaced with a sadness. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 10. And when the time for the, burn, for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw this angel, he was startled. He was gripped by fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? The prayer they had prayed decades ago. The prayer they had lifted up with tears. The prayer that they had long since given up on. The prayer that, that, that hope that has been extinguished and has been replaced by this sadness and this sorrow. Gabriel stands before Zechariah and he says the prayer is on. The hope remains. Your prayer has been heard. Even though they prayed it decades ago, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. That sadness in your heart, Gabriel is saying, that, that sadness that you mask with that smile, that sadness that you mask by trying to push forward your best disposition, well, it will be replaced with joy. Because this child will be born, he will be a joy and delight to you, but not only that, Many will rejoice because of his birth. His mission, his calling is to pave a pathway uh, to make known the Messiah and so that many people can tread on that pathway and come to know the Messiah. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. This isn't simply a practical question. This is a faithless question. Zechariah heard the word of the Lord. It was this incredible promise to him, and he responded with this sadness, with this despair. How many times do we do that when we read the Bible? And God speaks a promise to us about his love, the promise about his provision, a promise about a harvest that's around the corner if we continue to persevere. How many times do we read the word and God speaks his promise to us, but we read it with routine and we respond like Zechariah and we say, ah, I'm going to pass on that one. Because we read it with a sense of routine or we heard the word of the Lord with a sense of routine. Zechariah passed on the promise of God. He chose not to believe it. And there is always a cost of disobedience. There's always brokenness that flows from our disobedience. And let's hear of the consequence of Zechariah's disobedience. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. 
And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Anytime we hear the word of the Lord, and we distrust and we disregard the word of the Lord, and we disobey the word of the Lord, it is never without consequence. It is never with cost. Brokenness always flows from it. For Zechariah, he lost his voice for the entire pregnancy for nine months. We studied last week how we know that the Bible is the word of God. It's not simply a book of fairy tales. It's a book of miracles. This is not the word of men. This is the word of God. We looked at the reality that the Bible is scientifically pure, it's historically accurate, it's archaeologically accurate, it's prophetically flawless. The messianic prophecies will put goosebumps on the back of your neck. It impacts our life personally. But I believe one of the greatest ways that we can know that the Bible is the word of God is because if we distrust and we disobey the word of God... Consequences in our heart increase. Sorrow increases. Anxiety increases. Fear increases. Timidity increases. A love for the world ensnares us, entraps us. And we find ourselves in bondage. And it's not simply a matter of distrusting and disobeying God's word. If we're simply not in a position to hear God's word so that we have the opportunity to distrust and disobey God's word, if we don't even hear God's word so that we can distrust and disobey, there are still consequences and brokenness that flows from simply disregarding the word of God. You know the saying, what you don't know won't hurt you? Well, that's not true when it comes to the Word of God. What you don't know about what God wants of you, about what God longs for you, about what God expects of you, it will hurt you if you don't hear the Word of God, if you don't know what God wants for your life. Disregarding the Word so that you never even hear it, to know what God expects of you, disregarding the Word is the same as hearing the Word and distrusting the Word and disobeying the Word. For Zechariah, the brokenness that flowed of his disbelief and and disobedience was the reality that he was moot for nine months. What about you? Your distrust of God's promises, your disobedience of God's Word. What are the consequences that are increasing in your heart as a result? Why is disobedience such a big deal? Because when we disregard or disobey God's word, we are basically making three accusations about God. As Zechariah is, he is subconsciously saying, God, I don't think that your heart is big enough. I don't think that your love for me is great enough to do what you say. And we're saying, God, I don't think that you're wise enough to do what you say that you want to do in my life. Because the reality of the situation, let me enlighten you, God. We're old. We haven't been able to have a kid our entire lives. There's no way this is going to happen. Let me shed some insight onto your thought process, God. Or God, I don't think that you're able enough to do what you've spoken over me. And any time we distrust or disobey God's word to our life, we are in essence accusing God of not being good enough, not being wise enough, and not being able enough, and that grieves the heart of God, and there's consequences, there's brokenness that flows into our life and mounts until we finally surrender. When I was a kid, my older brother, he's a couple years older than me, sometimes he would pin me down, so I'd be on my back, and and he would have my hands back, and 
and his knees would be on my elbows. And he would be leaning over and he'd be holding my hands down so I couldn't move, right? I was pinned. And then he would, like, let this spit start falling down. And right before it got to my face, he would slurp it back up. <laughs> Did anybody else have this happen to them? <laughs> they, they didn't this morning either. It was only me. And, and I'd be like, get off, get off. And he would do it again. And this time he'd let the spit go a little bit further down and start trying to slurp it back up. But it was like past the point of no return. And then it would kind of break off the spit chain. It would like land in my eye and that would make me mad enough. I'd be able to shake him off. Sometimes he'd pin me down and you know how you just sort of tap a kid on the, on the forehead like this. It's no big deal, right? The first five seconds. After about 30 seconds of that or a minute of that, it's like a sledgehammer on your head. And in the same way, when we disregard, we distrust, we disobey God's word to our life, the Holy Spirit begins tapping with that grief, with that sorrow, with that joylessness, and eventually we think, I can function, I can manage, I can handle life without this, but it increases and it increases until we say, okay, God. Because reality is, we finally surrender and obey God when we learn enough about God's goodness, about his wisdom, about his power that we want to obey, or we grow enough in the word and in the spirit that we're able to obey, or like Zechariah, we hurt enough in life that we have to obey. And the Holy Spirit loves us so much, he will not relent, he will not back down, and that brokenness that flows from disobedience, that high cost of disobedience will continue to intensify until we say, okay, God, I repent. I fully surrender my life to you. I fully relinquish my will to you. And the beauty of it is, no matter how far we've strayed, the moment we repent, God will begin the process of translating all of that pain into praise, as was the case with Zechariah when the baby was finally born. They asked Elizabeth, because Zechariah hadn't been speaking for nine months, they said, what's the baby's name? And Elizabeth said, the name is John. And they said, John, his father's name is Zechariah. We should name the child Zechariah. And Zechariah got a pad and he wrote, the child's name is to be John. And he held it up. And they said, okay, the child's name is John. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was open and his pain turned into praise. The consequence of disbelief, distrust, and dis- disobedience, it was translated into praise. It was like a fire hydrant that the water was gushing out. Listen to Zechariah's song, chapter 1, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of a servant, David. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant. And it goes on and on. And not only did God answer Zechariah and Elizabeth's deepest prayer, God answered the prayer of his people with the promise of a Messiah that was soon to be born. Brokenness flows out of our disobedience. There is a high cost to all disobedience. Whether it's simply the word of God is collecting dust and we can't, we're not in a position to hear God speak. At least Zachariah was in a position 
to hear God speak, but he allowed that position to hear God speak to him become routine. So when God spoke, he distrusted, he didn't personalize it, he disobeyed. So we have to be in a position to hear God speak through his word. We have to be sensitive to God speaking through the Holy Spirit to other believers, through other believers. And when God does speak, we believe that God is good enough. His heart is big enough. His plan is wise enough. His power is able enough to do what he said in our life. And then, secondly, we looked at the brokenness that will inevitably flow from disobedience. But now, let's look at the blessing that will inevitably flow from obedience. The angel Gabriel is busy in this season. He visited Elizabeth, and now he'll visit Mary. Let's look in verse 28, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin... You might circle that, keep that in mind, because this word will continue to repeat, and any time God is repetitive, you know that God is trying to emphasize something, and He wants us to catch it, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married, she's engaged, to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end What a promise that was spoken to this virgin Mary who's engaged to Joseph. Mary asks not a faithless question, but a a practical question. Verse 34. How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said, you're going to have a child, and this will be the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. And she responds very practically, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This is the first characteristic that we need to know about God's promise in our life, a characteristic of a promise of God, a characteristic of what God wants to do in your life and in my life, a characteristic of God's promises spoken into our life is that they are impossible. It's impossible. Maybe you've heard the phrase or the saying, God will never put more on you than you can bear. Have you heard that? That's found right next to, in the Bible, that's found right next to cleanliness is next to godliness. That's found right next to look before you leap. In other words, these are all sayings. It's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever read, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's fortune cookie stuff. That's not the Bible. In fact, the Bible is just the opposite. The Bible tells us God will continue to give us more and more and more that we can handle until finally we rely on Him rather than ourselves. That's what the Apostle Paul said. These things happen to us, more things than we could bear, so that we would rely on God and not ourselves. A characteristic of a promise that God wants to do in your life is that it will be impossible. Sometimes when you're reading Scripture and the Holy Spirit will say, This is what I want to do in your life. Allow your sleepy heart to awaken. 
Like Elizabeth and Zechariah, perhaps you've been praying this for so long and your hearts have grown so weary and your heart just for a second may have quickened with life and with hope, but then you say, oh, well, that's too big. That can't be from God. How about let's inversing that thought process. That is so big, that must be from God. Was it born in time alone with God? Do mature believers confirm that this is the Lord's leading in your life? Are circumstantially doors kind of beginning to open? Is the Holy Spirit speaking this into your heart? Is it impossible? And if so, the question is not, will this be successful or or not? The question is, will you be obedient or disobedient? Because God is calling you to trust Him. He's calling you to trust that He loves you this much, that He's able to do it, and that He's wise enough to accomplish this in your life. A characteristic of God's promises to you are that it will be impossible. A second characteristic is that it may very well be unpopular. And it may very well cost you everything. Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and it will overshadow you and you're going to have a child and it's going to be a miraculous conception and a virgin birth. Now, Mary's open to this. I don't know if she's thinking about it at this time or if she most assuredly thought about it later. She's going to have to talk to her fiancé about this. And she did talk to him about it. And here's how the conversation went. She said, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he said, you're what? She said, yeah. And he said, I didn't have anything to do with that. And she said, I know, but here's the exciting thing. I'm pregnant with the Son of God. It's a virgin. It's a miraculous conception. It's going to be a virgin birth. Joseph didn't buy that. His response was, you could at least be honest. You're not even honest with me about this thing. We've got to break this thing off. We know that that was Joseph's response because he was a man of character. And the Bible tells us that he had in mind to put her away quietly for the sake of her reputation. Because this was a culture that would stone people for this sort of thing. In fact, they, do th- they still do that in this day and age. The Arab vicinities surrounding Israel, they'll still stone people for adultery or, 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 or sexual relations out of wedlock. Joseph didn't buy the story. He had in mind to put her away, but because he was compassionate, he was going to do it privately to try to spare her reputation and her life. Which is why an angel, Gabriel, still working overtime, had to come and talk to Joseph and say, no, she's telling the truth. Which is gracious of God to intervene and talk to Joseph on behalf of Mary. And so Joseph surrendered his life. But the first characteristic of a promise from God is that it's going to be impossible and you have to rely on him, not yourself And sometimes God takes us through a brokenness process, as he did Abraham and Sarah, as he did Elizabeth and Zechariah, as he did the Apostle Paul, so that they realize, I don't bring 80% to the table, and God brings 20%. I don't even bring 10%, and God brings 90%. I bring nothing, and God brings everything. It's going to be impossible, so that we rely on him and not ourselves. And the second characteristic is it could very well be unpopular. And it will cost you. And in order to surrender your will to God's will, in order for me to surrender my will to God's will, we have to be willing for it to cost us a lot. In fact, we have to be willing for it to cost us 
everything as Abraham was willing when he sacrificed Isaac on the altar. But God stopped him and he said, I just wanted to know you're willing to sacrifice everything for me. Jesus said, count the cost and follow. God desires our obedience. God desires our relinquishing our entire will because we trust his love, his plan, his goodness, his power in our lives. But whatever we sacrifice for God, even if it's everything, it will not compare to what God blesses us with in its place. And this is the third characteristic of God's promises in our life. The first is that they're impossible. The second is that they're oftentimes and most of the time unpopular. And it will cost us. And we have to be willing for it to cost us everything. And the third characteristic of God's promises in our life is that they are unspeakable. They're unimaginable. Listen to Mary's song. It's like it's right out of the Psalms. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Catholics definitely esteem Mary too much, no doubt. It's idolatry. Protestants perhaps don't esteem her enough. She said, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. But he sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What a beautiful psalm. So we've seen the brokenness that flows out of disobedience. And the Holy Spirit will not relent until we surrender all. We've seen the blessing that will inevitably follow and chase down our obedience. And the statements that we opened up the sermon with. When will we learn how unspeakably pleasing obedience is in God's eyes? And when will we understand how great the reward is that he bestows upon the obedient? And the third, the, the third um, aspect of this Christmas story is the bridge back to obedience. You know, we tend to think the Old Testament's all about the law and people got saved by upholding the law. And the New Testament's all about grace and we can just really mess around and be really sloppy in our righteousness. But it's all about grace so it doesn't matter that much and we're heaven bound. Both thought processes are wrong. In the Old Testament, nobody was ever saved by the law. The law simply kept them in bounds. Nobody could ever uphold the law. They didn't have the Spirit of Christ within them to uphold the law. In the Old Testament, they are saved the same way we are in the New Testament, through faith in Jesus Christ. They just placed their faith through prophecies and foreshadowings and sacrifices. It was blurry, but they placed their faith through faith. They they placed their faith in Christ through the prophecies, and they were born again. As Abraham believed God... And it was credit to him as righteousness. Just as we place our faith in Christ looking back, they place their faith in Christ looking ahead. We have it so much better. But in the New Testament, the law was not done away with. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 
Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, not the slightest stroke of a pen, not the dot of an eye, will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. The law wasn't done away with. But as we place our faith in Christ, we're given a new heart and we're given a new spirit so that now we have the capacity to follow Christ. We have the capacity to obey completely. Because all the law, Jesus said, all the Old Testament can be summarized, all the Ten Commandments can be summarized with two statements. Love God and love people. The first four of the Ten Commandments are in relation to loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't take His name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. The remaining six deal with loving others. In fact, Jesus said all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament hinges upon these two statements. Love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. And Jesus replaced that second statement with a greater statement on the eve of His crucifixion. Love others as I have loved you. And now watch me go to the cross and love others in the same way. So the law was never done away with, but through faith in Christ, we now have the capacity to follow the commands and to obey completely. And the law of love is in our hearts so that now with a new heart, we love God and we love people. But what God has always wanted from a people is complete obedience. This is what he was after in the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis. And the Lord God commanded the man, commanded. He wanted them to obey. Genesis 3.11. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Why did God command them? Because he wanted their obedience. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. The Lord God sent him out of the garden, and he drove out the man because of this disobedience. That's the book of Genesis. We go 65 books later to the last book of the Bible, and the 66th book, in the book of Revelation. We read in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. God says, Blessed are those who do his commandments. He's talking about the church. Those who do his commandments, those who obey him with all of their heart, that they may have the right to the tree of life, paradise lost, paradise restored. What God wants are people who obey Him because they trust in His goodness. They trust in His wisdom. They trust in His power over their lives. Jesus is the bridge back into the realm of obedience. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we read, we read For as by one man's disobedience, this is Adam, Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, this is Jesus and the cross, many will be made righteous. You see, being a follower of Jesus Christ isn't simply having our sins forgiven. And it's not simply being clothed in the very righteousness of God. And it's not simply being heaven bound. And it's not simply being his child and, and having an audience with him every time we pray. But it's having a restored capacity to obey. Because we have a new heart that longs to surrender our will to His will. Obedience, God's longing for His people's obedience runs all the way through the Old Testament. We read in Genesis 6.22 that Noah, according to all that God commanded him, obeyed and he built the ark. 
We read about Abraham in Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. We read about Abraham again in Genesis 22:16 through 18. By myself, I have sworn blessing. I will bless you and multiplying. I will multiply your descendants. In your seed, all the nations shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we read about Moses that um, God says, if you indeed obey my voice, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. That's to Moses and his people. And again to Moses and his people. Because Moses obeyed God, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the offering. And as a church, if we want the glory of the Lord to fill this place and permeate into our community so that what we pray for, a revival, breaks out among us, we have to have hearts that are completely surrendered and completely obedient to God. And in Deuteronomy, I set before you the blessing if you obey, and the curse if you do not. And Saul is a case study in obedience or a lack thereof. Saul, the first king of Israel who reigned 50 years, disobeyed. God was unpleased. He had a second shot. He disobeyed again. The prophet Samuel confronted Saul, and King Saul said, I obeyed. And Saul said, no, you partially obeyed. Samuel told Saul, no, you partially obeyed. And King Saul retorted back to the prophet Samuel, no, I mostly obeyed. And to that, the prophet Samuel said, well, partial obedience is disobedience. Mostly obedient is complete disobedience. And the kingdom was taken from Saul. God is looking for people who will trust and obey with their whole heart. As we read in Jeremiah, I did not speak to your fathers concerning sacrifice, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. But that's just Old Testament stuff, right? No, Jesus came not only to remove our sins, but to give us a model of how to live. And we read of Jesus in Hebrews 10, 9. Jesus says to his Father, Behold, I've come to do your will, or to obey your will. Jesus says in John chapter 5, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus said, my delight is to obey my Father and do all of his will. Jesus said that eternal life is the gift to those who do the will of his Father. This is because they are saved. As a result, they are sanctified. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, obey me. In another place, he said, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. We say we love, we, we say that we love Jesus, but our love for Jesus is proven by our obedience to his word. And Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, in other words, if you obey me, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And reality is, All of us have disobeyed. All of us have disobeyed. And this is the reason that Jesus was born. And this shows us how serious disobedience is. It necessitated God coming to this earth through his son, Jesus Christ, and paying for our sins on the cross. As we read about this in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and this is our bridge back to obedience. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There were shepherds 
living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. This has always been such a comforting passage to me. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those whom his favor rests. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam in the Garden of Eden. But by one man's obedience, this is Jesus on the cross, many will be made righteous. You know, sometimes when I visit families in the hospital after a baby is born, you know, the dads always dream of their sons following in their footsteps. Whether it's, I can't wait to teach them to play baseball, or I can't wait to, 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 to train them up in football, or I want them to go to the same school that I went to. And they, they pick their sons up, and they have all of these great plans for them. When Jesus was born, and he was in a manger, and the father looked at the son, it was with a broken heart, and I believe it was within tears in the eyes of Father God, as he looked at his son, because he knew what his plans for his son were when he was born, that those tender hands would one day have spikes driven through them. And that soft, tender skin on the back of that baby as Jesus would grow into a man, would be beaten and would be ripped off, And the beard would be pulled out of his face and he would be spit upon. And that soft, tender head would have spikes, a crown of thorns driven into it. And as the prophecies prophecies said, this Messiah would be beat so ruthlessly that he wouldn't even have the appearance of a man. And he would be hanging on the cross, saving those who were spitting upon him. They should have been worshiping him, but they were ridiculing him. And they were mocking him. And this is how severe disobedience is. It necessitated the death of the Son of God to pay for our sins, to accept the punishment of our disobedience. But this is how great the love of God is. He was willing to sacrifice his Son in order to build a bridge so that we could once again have a relationship with him. Because salvation is about having our sins forgiven, clothed in his righteousness, being heaven bound. But not only that, once again, having the spirit of God in our heart so that we have a renewed and revived capacity to obey. Because from Genesis to Revelation, God is still looking for people who will obey him with all of their heart. Not partial obedience, not mostly obedient, not deferred obedience, but Entire obedience, immediately, right now, whatever the Lord has put on your heart. It might be to roll up your sleeves and serve in ministry. It might be to get out of an ungodly relationship. It might be to forgive somebody who's offended you. It might be to make amends. It might be to share your faith and work. The list could go on and on. It's different for all of us. It might be to believe the promise that God has been trying to awaken your heart to. It might be to pray with boldness once again. But God is looking for complete obedience, immediate obedience from all of us. 
And I know that some might be locked into a sin pattern. And I just want to give you some action steps so that you can be completely, entirely, immediately obedient to God as a follower of Jesus Christ. One is acknowledge your sin. This is confession of sin to God. And two, this is be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to love God more than we love the world. It's not just about don't do a bunch of bad stuff and do a bunch of good stuff. It's about be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we love God more than the world. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit by asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge our sin to God. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just. He'll forgive you and restore you immediately into a relationship with Him. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we love God more than the world and we're filled with the Holy Spirit by asking to be filled. It's that simple. This is too important for Jesus to make rocket science. He puts it on the bottom shelf so that when we are at our most broken, we can get it and we can acknowledge our sin and we can immediately be filled with sin. Jesus said, which of you, if your son asks for a fish or bread, will give him a rock or a scorpion? You love your kids too much for that. And in the same way, your heavenly Father will graciously give you the Holy Spirit if you ask Him. So acknowledge your sin. This is, you confess it. You say, God, I've been on the wrong path here. And, and your Holy Spirit has been convicting me. And I've been trying to mask my sorrow. But I'm hurting enough, God. I just want to repent. And I want you to replace my pain with praise. I turn from my sin and be prayed to be filled, pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a greater love for you than the world. A is acknowledge, B is be filled, C is confide in friends. Sometimes if you continually repeat the same patterns, it's called a stronghold, it's called bondage or addiction. But in order for that to be loosed, you have to surround yourself with some people that you really trust. And they, you know they're in your corner, and you know that they're not gossips. And just share, I'm struggling in this area. And let them put a hand on you and pray for you, and the tears flow, and you sense a freedom, and you sense a love for the Lord more than for the world. And then D, determine never to give up, because God has not given up on you. And He will never give up on you. Would you guys stand with me, please? You know, um, I have a friend whose car was plumb dry in oil. I mean, she didn't have a drop of oil in her car. And if you've ever heard a, a car when it has no oil, it makes a, a horrible clacking sound. Just clack, 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 clack. So she didn't know much about cars. And so she fixed it herself by simply turning up her radio louder. <laughs> and that drowned out the clacking. And that's what we tend to do when we sense this sorrow, when we sense an anxiety by disregarding, distrusting, or disobeying the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord. We just sometimes turn up the volume of life. We get busier and we maybe go faster into escape of sins or we try to go higher up the ladder or whatever it might be or we go, we, 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 go, we go further into hobbies whatever it might be it's just turning up the volume of life but that clacking is still there 
and the Holy Spirit will continue to increase his conviction. It's not condemnation. He loves you, but he wants the best for you. We only have one life to live, and life goes by so fast, and he wants our total surrender now, not later, now. He doesn't want any of us to sell out for some blue light special. He wants to give us his very best now. But that happens when we totally surrender our life to him. We totally surrender our will to him. No matter the cost. Because there's nothing that we can give up for God that Jesus said, I won't return it a hundred times in this life and the life to come. We can never outgive God. So we fully surrender. And this sermon has really encouraged me. I've preached to myself all, all weekend long. I'm excited to seek the face of God, to hear His voice, to read His promises. If there's a promise, I want to believe it. If there's a command, I want to obey it. If, there's, if I read about an error in the Scripture, an, an, an example of something someone did wrong, I want to avoid it. If there's an example to follow, I want to follow it. When I was wrestling through a decision, and, and then the, 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 the Spirit of the Lord just whispered to my heart, what do you think I would do in this situation? I'm like, okay, all right. It's not consistent with conventional wisdom down here, but I know exactly what you would do. I just want to live obediently to God. Because that's where his blessings follow. He will chase down the obedient and bless them more than we can imagine. His blessings are unspeakable and they're unimaginable. Ephesians chapter 3.20 He is able to do immeasurably more than anything we would dare ask. That's the unspeakable. Or imagine. That's the unimaginable. The unspeakable and the unimaginable is reserved for the entirely obedient. The reality is we cannot be obedient on our own. None of us can. And maybe maybe you've experienced that, that frustration of good intentions and that sin pattern. That whole cycle. And that's why Jesus came, not only to forgive our sins, but to fill our hearts with His very Spirit, to give us a capacity to love God and to love people. And that's complete obedience. So acknowledge that sin. Be filled with the Holy Spirit by asking. Perhaps you need to confide in some friends. Don't you ever give up, because God will not give up on you. A just man falls seven times, and seven times rises again. Jesus is the one who said, forgive, 70 times 7. He's saying an innumerable amount. Jesus said it to his disciples, and he certainly means it toward us. You have not exhausted the grace of God. You've not exhausted the forgiveness of God. His arms are open wide, but we have to turn to him. We have to return to him, confess our sin, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and resolve to be entirely, immediately obedient to how the Spirit's leading. So with that, we're going to respond in worship, and this is an altar, and present your body a living sacrifice. Let's be obedient immediately. Let's confess sin immediately, however the Spirit may be leading you, or just respond with gratitude for the love of God and the fact that He was born to die so that we could live with Him forever. But if you would just bow your heads with me a moment, has this registered with your heart in any way? Is there some areas in your life that you've been disobedient and you need to be obedient? If that's you, just raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Okay. Yeah, me too. Father, you see our hands creating us a clean heart to know your will and do your will, to be completely surrendered to you. 
And I'll just let you guys respond to the Lord.